0: Hello and welcome to episode 346 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from Birmingham is a shocking one which ruins so many lives for generations. Although even today there is lots about the investigation that followed the events I'm going to cover, I don't think that the human stories at the centre are covered as much as they should be. So today I'm going to look at the Birmingham pub bombings which, as of today, July 2023, remained the biggest unsolved mass murder on English soil in the 20th century. But first, let's quickly set some context with our guest, the month and year game. At number three in the UK charts this week was Queen with Killer Queen. At number 27 in the US charts was John Denver with Annie's Song. At number five in the best-selling Singles of the Year in Australia was Terry Jacks with Season in the Sun. Remember that one? Apparently, the original was written by Jacques Brel, who wrote it in a brothel in Tangier. It told of a man dying of a broken heart and shows him saying his last farewells to his close friend and priest Emile, an acquaintance named Antoine, and his wife Francois, who has cheated on him numerous times with Antoine. I guess if the lyrics hadn't been changed by Terry Jacks, Westlife wouldn't have later covered it and it would have spared us all the pain of their version. I think I might even prefer to listen to the Kings of Leon than that. Mm, but then again. In the news this month, 78 people died when the Go-Go Club in Seoul, South Korea burnt down. Six of the victims jumped to their death on the seventh floor after a club official barred the doors after the fire started. Ted Bundy victim Debbie Kent disappeared in Salt Lake City, Utah. Approximately 140 people were killed when a suspension bridge collapsed in Nepal. In the UK, McDonald's opened its first UK restaurant in Woolwich, South East London. Lord Lucan disappeared after the murder of his children's nanny to never be seen again. Well, except for sightings with Elvis in Clacton and Great Yarmouth. And comedy writer Stephen Merchant was born this month. So did you guess the month and year? Well, we have gone back much further than normal today, so it's a tricky one. But it was November 1974. As you know, Elton John's been in the news a lot recently with his performance at Glastonbury. And just to give an idea of just how long Elton John has been around, this month, November 1974, he released his greatest hits album, which was his 11th studio album. How about that? Okay, so today's story comes from Birmingham, the second largest city in the UK, and about 100 miles north of London. The year before our story starts in 1973, the provisional IRA had moved their campaign of terror to the UK mainland, attacking military and other symbolically important places as they aimed to bring pressure on the UK government to withdraw from Northern Ireland by influencing popular opinion by their actions. And by 1974, the campaign was in full swing, with an attack about every three days, although not all were successful. Then on the 14th of November 1974, a 28-year-old member of the IRA, James McDade, was killed in Coventry when the bomb he was placing in a telephone exchange and postal office exploded prematurely. IRA sympathisers in England planned to bury McDade in Birmingham with a paramilitary guard of honour but the Home Secretary intervened to say this could not happen and all potential processions and marches linked to the death of McDade were banned under public order laws. The IRA changed their plans and instead arranged his body to be flown to Belfast but when airport staff refused to handle his coffin he was instead flown to Dublin Airport. The IRA units in Birmingham were, it was reported, very angry about how McDade's funeral arrangements were handled. A week later, Thursday the 21st of November, was just a normal day for the people of Birmingham. Nobody out and about in the city centre would have been aware at eight eleven pm that a man called the Birmingham Post and Mail newspapers from a telephone box during the call, the man informed the telephonist that a bomb had been planted in the Rotunda building and one in the tax office in New Street, which was part of a seven-storey building above a pub known as the Tavern in the Town. The man used the authentication code X," the agreed words to stop hoax calls. But the man didn't say that the first bomb was actually in the Mulberry Bush Pub, which occupied the bottom two floors of the Rotunda building. But there wasn't enough time to evacuate the pub, so it's between 8.15 and 8.25, just, what, 10-15 minutes after the call, both bombs went off with utterly catastrophic results. The bombs would claim their lives as 21 people, 19 on the night and two later from their injuries, and leave over 220 people injured. It's been reported that the delay for phoning the warning through was because the phone box had been identified by the IRA for phoning the warning had been vandalised and the man had had to find another phone box which was busy I think and that caused the delays. It was a busiest Thursday night in the Mulberry Bush pub. Thursday was payday for many in 1974 and it was also late night shopping in the town. It was at 8.17 when a bomb exploded in a duffel bag and it would kill 10 innocent people in the pub. 21-year-old Maureen Mitchell was in the pub that night, as it was a central place to meet her fiancé, who lived on the other side of Birmingham. They met there most nights, and on the evening of the attack, they sat in a spot under the stairs, as Maureen told Ian about her upcoming works Christmas party. I don't remember hearing anything, Maureen later told the BBC. It was like the lights just went out, and the next thing I just felt as if I was... Well, I was, floating through the air. I don't remember hitting the ground again. Then I remember Ian calling to me and I was just going, my leg, my leg, I can't move my leg. I remember Ian calling to me. Ian was trying to get me up. There was a lot of rubble on my legs and he was trying to get that off. The bomb that had gone off was a massive one at 11 kilograms and it destroyed the inside of the pub, the staircase, the ceiling collapsed and there was a metre-wide crater left by the impact. Maureen was carried away from the scene by a security guard from the Rotunda building and placed her by New Street Station when she was taken to hospital in one of the first ambulances that arrived at the scene shortly afterwards. I didn't think I would make it because my whole stomach was in a mess, Maureen said. Once we got to the hospital, they just took me straight to theatre and the next few days after that are quite hazy, because I was in intensive care for five days. In fact, Maureen was very fortunate to survive. Shrapnel passed through Maureen's hip and lodged in her bowel, which meant some of the bowel had to be taken out, and doctors were so worried about her that she was actually given the last rites in hospital. A paramedic, one of the first to arrive, later described what he saw as being reminiscent of a slaughterhouse. A fireman was reported as saying that when he had seen her writhing, screaming torso. He told the police they should let a TV crew into the aftermath of the explosion as he hoped that if members of the IRA saw the reality of innocent people dead or dying in the rubble, then they would properly see the consequences of their actions. But this request was refused as they feared extreme reprisals if they did so. 19-year-old Pamela Palmer died at the Mulberry Bush that evening. She'd been with her fiancé, Derek Blake, when the bomb went off. Derek survived but lost a leg. And he later told how he remembered a lightning-blue flash, then everything went black. He said he was calling out to Pam but he realised she couldn't move or get to him. 30-year-old Michael Beasley also died at the pub where he drank most nights. He led a quiet but a happy life and he was soon to be engaged to his girlfriend, Nora, Another of his major interests was film and he was a regular at the nearby Odin Theatre. On the night that he was killed, he'd actually found a lucky charm when travelling on the bus, which he gave to Mary Jones, the wife of the pub landlord. Mary survived the blast and kept the lucky charm with her at all times following the attack. 46-year-old John Rowlands was with a group of his friends who lost their lives that night. John was in the Royal Navy before training as an electrician at Land Rover. Speaking at the inquest, his son Paul said that he could picture just where his dad and his friends were standing when they died, in their usual spot leaning up against the bar with their drinks. His other son Stephen said that, without his sense of humour and advice and his mischievous nature, we lost a great friend as well as a dad. 56-year-old market porter James Caddick was one of the same group of friends at the bar that night and he too died in the bombing. He was a father to seven children and a husband. One of John's friends also killed standing at the bar was John Jones. He joined the post office after fighting in the Second World War where he sustained serious injuries. A modest, unassuming man, he went on to have four children and spent as much time as possible in his real passion, which was gardening and in the city of Birmingham today, the Cliff Jones Memorial Trophy is still awarded for the best-tended allotment in the city. Another of this group of friends was 47-year-old Stanley Bobman. His children remembered him as the funniest and kindest person anyone could ever wish to meet. 33-year-old father of three, Trevor Thrupp, died in the Mulberry Bush pub. He worked on the railways, and he'd only popped into the pub to buy cigarettes. His son Paul would later talk about his infectious laugh, and the way he would cry and fall off the sofa while watching Laurel and Hardy. His daughter Diane struggled to come to terms with his death, and would see people who looked like him everywhere, and she would sometimes think he hadn't actually been killed, but maybe he just couldn't remember where he lived and that's why he hadn't come home. Paul said that he tells his children just how hard-working his dad was, saying he'd have looked forward to the weddings, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But he missed out on all of this, as he was taken so tragically at such a young age. 44-year-old Charles Gray also died in the pub that evening. He was born in Keith in Scotland and moved to Birmingham, where he worked for British Leyland as a mechanic, where he was known for his smart dress and his professional attitude to work where he never missed a single day. He was described at the inquest as genial though private, quiet to the point of being shy. As long term lodgers, Charles and his brother Robert stayed in a house in Birmingham where the house owner was treated by Charles as a mum. It was his first and last visit to the Mulberry Bush on the evening of Thursday, the 21st of November. Minutes after the bomb exploded at the Mulberry Bush, a second bomb exploded in the tavern in the town, leaving 11 more innocent people dead. In this basement pub it was busy, with about 200 people inside, just relaxing and enjoying themselves. The explosion was so ferocious that some of the victims were actually blown through a brick wall, with their remains found between the rubble and the live underground electric cables that supplied the centre of Birmingham. One of the first police officers at the scene described it as absolutely dreadful, with a number of dead bodies on top of each other and others around various parts of the destroyed pub. Those who had survived were in shock, some sitting quietly, others screaming, others walking aimlessly around unable to comprehend the sheer horror they'd experienced. One of the survivors later told how the sound of the explosion was replaced by a deafening silence and the smell of burnt flesh. One couple in the pub were 18-year-old Carol Bates and 17-year-old Kevin Burgess. They'd only known each other for three weeks and were on one of their first dates, with Kevin missing college, as he was so excited to see Carol again. Even with the recent spate of IRA attacks, there was no sense of danger, and Carol's policeman dad had told her to be careful, but he hadn't felt there was any real cause for concern. The young couple met outside the nearby Odeon Cinema before heading to the tavern and getting drinks from the bar before standing near a pillar. They survived the attack, but others in the bar didn't. 28-year-old Thomas Chater was working behind the bar when the bomb went off and he was killed. He'd only started working in the pub a couple of weeks earlier to make some extra cash. He was engaged to Susan Hans, who he'd met at the nearby Rackham's department store back in 1971. The couple had just returned from a holiday in Malta and they were planning their future together. Susan later said, Clearly after the events in 1974 as a 23-year-old, I had to rebuild my life. I have no idea how things would have turned out had the bombings not occurred. 20-year-old Desmond Riley and his 23-year-old brother Eugene were from an Irish Catholic family They'd been born and raised in Birmingham and both were killed at the tavern in the town. Two of four siblings, Desmond had married recently and had gone to the tavern to celebrate with his brother the exciting news that his wife Elaine was pregnant. On the night he was killed, his family thought that Desmond was working 200 miles away in Durham and wasn't due home in Birmingham until the weekend. Their dad went to identify Eugene. Completely unaware that his other son had also died, until he was asked to identify him as well. Their mum would later say how Eugene was still living at home at the time of his death, and she would lie awake at night waiting for him to come home. She said, No words can describe how it's affected us, it's terrible, just terrible. His sister Mary told how Desmond was in a fantastic place in his life when he died. He was delighted that his wife Elaine was pregnant, but Eugene, never had the opportunity to get married and have children and Desmond never got to meet his son. Part of us died with them on the day that they died. 21-year-old quantity surveyor Stephen Wally was on a first date at the tavern when he was killed. At the inquest into his death, the following was read out. Mrs Wally Hunt would like to send her apologies but she's elderly and very frail and this is just too hard for her to face. The statement read, Before I had Stephen, I'd given birth to two other children, both of whom I lost at birth. So when Stephen was born alive and well, my husband and I could not have been happier. Whilst I would love the world to know about my son Stephen and the lovely young man he was, it's just too difficult and painful for me to recall any memories I have because it's too traumatic to remember. Stephen was on a first date with 18-year-old Lynn Bennett, who also died that night. She had met Stephen via NME's Lonely Hearts Club. Her sister Claire said of Lynn that she was a loving daughter and the best big sister who was really into fashion. She said, I recall her buying some purple hot pants, the height of fashion at the time. Lynn was very petite and looked great in miniskirts and platforms. Lynn and her dad were season ticket holders at Birmingham City Football Club. Dad never set foot in the football ground again. Such was the pain of losing Lynn. Close friends 22-year-old Marilyn Nash and 19-year-old Anne Hayes also died at the tavern. Marilyn was a supervisor at the Miss Selfridge department of Lewis's department store, where Anne also worked, after spending three years as a hairdresser. Maxine Hambleton was just 18 and she lost her life soon after entering the pub. She was studying for A-levels and had worked in a vineyard in France to improve her language skills. She'd only gone into the pub to give friends an invitation to a housewarming party. Her sister Julie later told the Belfast Telegraph that Maxine was a lovely, forward-thinking girl with a hippie sense of style. She made flared jeans for her younger sister. That night we knew Maxine was in town, but it never entered our heads that she was in the bomb. We saw the ITA news flash about the explosions. She told how Judy's stepdad had had the terrible task of breaking the news to her and her sister Jane the next day when they came home from school. Describing how she felt, she said, You go into another universe where everything becomes surreal. You think you're dreaming. Your world and your mind and your body are outside themselves. They're all working independently because your body goes into shock and your life is never the same again. Maxine's friend, 17-year-old Jane Davis, had just gone into the tavern that day to view holiday photographs she'd had developed that afternoon. And the youngest victim of the bombing at just 16 was Neil Marsh, known as Tommy by his loving grandparents in Jamaica, where he was raised. He was just days away from his 17th birthday. Tommy died as a child, said his cousin Danielle. Had he lived, he would most likely have lived a life close to his family and he'd probably have got married and had children. His mother would have had the joy of being part of his life, the joy of caring for grandchildren, which she never had. Neil was killed next to his friend, 17-year-old Paul Davis. Paul's children, Michelle and Paul Anthony, spoke at the inquest of Paul's love of reggae and Bruce Lee movies. Michelle spoke about how he'd used their mum to practice his moves on as he tried to improve his Bruce Lee moves. His son Paul Anthony, who was born three months after his dad's death, said, Dad died just a few weeks before his 18th birthday, but I feel his spirit lives on in me. He may be gone, but he will never be forgotten. And Neil and Paul had actually been planning to go to a youth club locally but it had been cancelled for some reason, so that's why they went into town and they were actually just walking past the tavern when they were hit by debris from the explosion. That's just the stories of some of those who were killed that night. Six men were quickly arrested on suspicion of murder. They were from Northern Ireland and had lived in Birmingham since the 60s. Five of them had left Birmingham New Street Station for Belfast on the 21st of November 1974 the night of the bombings. They were travelling to Belfast to attend the funeral of James McDade, who we spoke about at the beginning of the episode. The men who had been childhood friends with McDade were arrested as they waited for the ferry to Northern Ireland. But the police investigation and the trial fell far short of decent standards of justice. In fact, it was all shocking. There was incorrect forensic evidence and the men were forced to confess. Chris Mullin, the former Labour MP and investigative journalist, describes it as follows. The suspects who confess claim they did so after being beaten and deprived of sleep, having aggressive dogs put in their cells, and in one case, being subject to a mock execution using blank cartridges. But on the 14th of March 1991, Paddy Hill, Jerry Hunter, Johnny Walker, Hugh Callaghan, Richard McKenney and Billy Power finally walked out of London's Old Bailey as free men, their innocence finally proved. They'd served, wasted, nearly 17 years of their lives behind bars in one of the worst miscarriages of justice ever seen in Britain. So who was responsible for the bombs? In 2019, Chris Mullin, who was heavily involved in campaigning for the release of the Birmingham Six, confirmed the names of two of the bombers in an article in the London Review of Books. Mullin said that James Francis Gavin, an IRA member and former British soldier, convicted of other crimes, was one of two men who planted bombs in the tavern in the town and the Mulberry Bush. Gavin died in 2002. Mullin also claimed that Mick Murray, who died in 1999, was one of the two bomb makers. Murray was also the man who made the calls to the papers saying that the bombs had been planted. And when they planted the bombs, it was believed that they did it that evening when one of the men ordered drinks in the pub while another put the bomb in place. Maxine Hamilton's sister Julie has spoken publicly about her anger that still nobody's been held accountable for the murders. For Julie, the real Birmingham bombers, as well as being responsible for the murder of her sister and 20 other innocent people, also allowed the Birmingham Six to serve time for a crime they did not commit. She said, They let the Birmingham Six rot in prison and still they didn't come forward to admit they'd done it. In fact, Murray at the time, a 38-year-old father of six who lived in Birmingham, was at the trial where the innocent Six were jailed for murders they didn't commit. But rather than speak up, he said nothing and was convicted of lesser charges of conspiracy to cause explosions, for which he served 12 years in jail. The IRA denied any involvement the day after, and they didn't admit their involvement for a number of years. But more recently, former IRA members have spoken about the attack, all saying that the leadership of the IRA were appalled by it. But as we hear so often from the terrorist groups of all persuasions, not just the IRA, it is not a simple case for them of apologising for murdering innocent people. For example, Kieran Conway, who had just been appointed at the time as the IRA's Director of Intelligence, later described the attacks as a disgrace, but he would not admit the IRA had been reckless in placing bombs in places where larger numbers of the public would gather. He said, It was accidental and absolutely not intended. If you were asking, was it reckless to plant a bomb when you were informed that a bomb warning would be given, I would say not really, not reckless. But Maxine Hamilton's sister Julie totally dismissed this. There is nothing accidental about any bombings, she said. If you're going to go and plant bombs in a pub or any other building where you know there are crowds of people, then you should know that there are going to be fatalities and injuries. A five-year-old could work that out. We talk a lot on this podcast about the wide ripple effects of any murder. As well as killing innocent people on that terrible night, the IRA attacks made life extremely difficult for Birmingham's large Irish community, which suffered in the aftermath. Maurice Malone, who was chief exec of the Birmingham Irish Association, said, It was not just 21 people who died that night, on the 21st of November. The Irish community in Birmingham died. Irish workers and businesses were attacked in retaliation and the good-natured relations with friends and workmates stopped after the bombs. Morris's own dad suffered, he said. Soon after the bombings, he was verbally abused and assaulted during a tea break and came home battered and bruised. So where are we today? Unfortunately, the families and friends of the victims are still waiting for the answers they deserve. New inquests into those who died were held in the city in 2019, but the issue of who was responsible for the deaths was excluded by the coroner, leading the families to claim they have been left with so many unanswered questions. The victims' families, through the Justice for the 21 campaign group they've set up, have been asking for a public inquiry, into the deaths of their loved ones for years. It is even more confusing for them when earlier this year, a statutory public inquiry into the 1998 Omar bombing was announced in the House of Commons by the Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris. The shadow Northern Ireland Secretary Peter Carl said, The fact that the Northern Ireland Secretary is calling for this inquiry does clash with the government's overall approach to legacy issues. He's put the Omar families at the heart of today's decision. I'm worried that other victims of atrocities during the Troubles will be watching and wondering why their loved ones are not being treated in a similar way. For example, I speak regularly with the families of the Birmingham pub bombings victims and I'm worried about how this news will affect them. Victims are already noticing contradictions in the government's approach to legacy issues. The government has presented its logic as to why the atrocities committed in late 1998 qualify for public inquiry and those before don't, but it's a logic only understood within Whitehall. Many families still struggle with the loss of loved ones and their grief is compounded by the absence of information or justice. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's just a terrible story, isn't it, on every single level. I'm taken back to the fireman who arrived at one of the pubs and wanted the reality of what happened to be filmed. Maybe if any terrorist organisation attacking places where members of the public are saw the reality of the horror they create through their actions, they would stop. But then again, maybe this is just hopelessly naive and those following a cause, whatever the cause is, wouldn't be swayed. But those sorts of questions are for another podcast. Today I've tried really hard to stay away from the politics of the situation and just tell the stories of some of those killed and injured on that terrible winter's evening in 1974. All those lives that should have been fully and richly lived and those 21 futures taken away through terrorists fighting for their cause. When will humans ever learn? We can only hope that one day there will finally be justice for the families of the 21 people killed even if those responsible are no longer alive to face court. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to Facebook and join over 91,000 of us who talk UK true crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for over 50 bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. This week, I'm launching two huge competitions for Patreon members to win, firstly, a free criminology course and secondly, free online immersive crime games. Sounds good, right? So just get yourself over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and a huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Brian Duckett, Ryan Leach, Neve Buckley, June Horton, Carl Henton, Amanda Susan, and Cheryl Johnson. Your support is, I hope you know, so much appreciated. And still, if you join Patreon on an annual basis, I'm currently offering a 15% discount on this annual support package. So just head over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy.